0: This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Stay tuned and visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org. Uh, three years ago, Gail and I were on a uh, coast-to-coast uh, trip. We took off and, and um, had a sabbatical and took six weeks uh, to travel the country. And we left here and traveled down the coast to Florida, visited. We've, we had a lot of people across the country I wanted to see. Some people I hadn't seen in years and years and years. And uh, we stopped and saw um, uh, our daughter, Sarah, and her husband, Terry. They were living in Florida. Visited with them a few days. And then Gail said, I want to go see the Keys. So I said, okay, let's go see the Keys. So we drove down to the Keys and and went as far as you could go on Route 1. You know, got all the way to the end of Route 1 there and uh, turned around and came back up and went through Alligator Alley and and, uh, and saw alligators. I mean, tons of alligators laying on the side of the, the canal there, sunning themselves, and that was really neat. Went up the west coast of Florida, visited some friends there in Fort Myers and, and some friends up in the Tampa area. Stayed and spent um, a couple days with um, Mark and Sue Burns uh, there in the Panhandle and then headed, headed west uh, toward the west coast, our goal was to get to Southern California and then get on the Coast Highway and travel up the coast of California as far as we felt like going, and then eventually make our way back. We didn't really have any set plans as where we, when we were going to be where. We just told folks, hey, we're, we're coming out, and we're going to stop by and see you, and we'll let you know a day or two in advance when we think we're going to arrive. It was just kind of like no calendar kind of a thing. Let's just go. And, and we had a great time. And uh, doing so. But it just worked out that we arrived, uh, we were going to see Paul and, and Jenny South. Paul used to, and Paul and Jenny used to be partners in our church, and then they moved to New Orleans where uh, Paul began began to uh, go to seminary at New Orleans Baptist Seminary. And we hadn't seen them in a few years. So it just worked out that we arrived in New Orleans on the day before Mardi Gras. And uh, that wasn't planned. I thought, well, we're here. We might as well see Mardi Gras. And so uh, we, we did and, and uh, the next day uh, was was, uh, was uh, Mardi Gras and we went to some parades with Paul and Jenny and their kids and, and the parades that we saw, we were in Metairie right outside of New Orleans and four parades, one after another. I mean, we were out there for hours and, uh, and it was a lot of fun and we had a great time. It was very tame. It wasn't anything like, you know, what you think about when you think of, you know, the French Quarter and all the debauchery that goes on there. Uh, year round, but especially at that time, and uh, we had a great time but Mardi Gras uh, is uh, another name for Mardi Gras is fat Tuesday uh, Mardi is i guess the French word for for tuesday and I don't know if Grah means fat or what it means, but anyway, they call it Fat Tuesday, and it's the big celebration, the big blowout, the big let's eat, drink, and be merry day because tomorrow is Ash Wednesday, and beginning tomorrow, I gotta put on my holy religious face and give up something. So before I give anything up, I'm gonna go and just go out with a bang on Fat Tuesday. Live like the world on Tuesday because tomorrow I gotta be something God expects me to be. And that's what Mardi Gras And I think, golly, man, is that? Well, th- th- to me, that just seems so empty and so shallow. If I go through a season and like Lent and when it's all over, I- I- I'm not looking forward to it because I'm gonna give up my caffeine, you know, or I'm gonna give up my chocolate or whatever it is that I give. I'm gonna give something up for those 40 days, but I'll tell you what, buddy, as soon as it's over, I'm back on track. It just seems so, so shallow to me to be involved in a religion that causes me to do something for a short period of time and it has no lasting impact and lasting effect on my life. And that's what I witnessed there at Mardi Gras. No life change, just an inconvenience for 40 days. Now, in our passage that we're going to get to in Colossians, Paul's going to make it clear that following Christ is not about observing religious holidays and feasts and festivals and traditions. My purpose today, by the way, is not to be critical of those who are observing Lent. I I really think that if Christians can take 40 days to refocus on Christ and Christian values, I think that's got to be a good thing. But it's only a good thing if it brings about in those 40 days changes in my life that take me past the holy day and last. Here's some things from last week's passage where we were in Colossians that lead up to today that that kind of help us frame our minds about about what we're gonna read and and hear. Paul told us last week, and he's been telling this all through Colossians, I am in Christ and Christ is in me. That is kind of the, the, the rock upon which we're built. I am in Christ, Christ is in me, Christ has made me in me, has made me complete, Paul told the Colossians. You are lacking nothing. He has come in you, and you are complete in him. And that means nothing more can be added to Christ in me to make me acceptable to God. I don't have to go through a lot of motions to say, Hey, God, are you noticing? Hey, God, are you paying attention? I'm in church today, God. Stop all of heaven and take a look. You know, I gave in the offering today, God. Nothing can be added to Christ in me to make me acceptable to God. And then Paul told us that Jesus erased the requirements of the Old Testament laws. Not only did he erase them, he says he nailed those things to his cross. So, as a Christian, I'm not required or expected by Christ to keep doing what he's already done. This was necessary stuff for this Colossian church to hear because, because they were hearing from two sides. They were hearing from the Judaizers on one side and the Gnostics, occult, cult, on the other side. And from both of these, they were hearing things like, look, you, you got to do more and you got to do necessary things to seek and do and, and to find Jesus and to follow after him. It's more than just Jesus. Moving from a works-centered religion, which is what all all religions really are. They're work-centered, they're me-centered, people-centered, do-centered. Moving from a work-centered religion to a saving faith in Christ really is a life-changer if you ever make that move. And many of us here have moved out of churches or maybe out of other religions or even cults that base their view of eternal life on a, on a list of things that we've got to do. Some of you responded to my, my, my question on Facebook about if you've come out of something like that, kind of what did you come out of? What was expected of you? What are the things you remember? And several responded about, well, I had to do this and I had to do that and this, these seven things and, and, and every day and every Sunday and every Wednesday night and, and all kinds of things that we were told. And I remember coming out of that same kind of thing myself. But Christianity is not about what you and I can do. Christianity is about what Christ has already done. And even after we grasp the gospel and the purpose of the cross, the truth of the matter is, because I know, because I experience this, I battle with this, the truth of the matter is we can still fight within ourselves to gain favor with God by rules and regulations. And it may surprise you that one of those who struggled most with that in the Bible was the Apostle Peter. I want to take a look at his story in Acts before we go back to find Paul's application in Colossians. If you're in Acts 10, verses one and two, there was a man in Caesarea. Caesarea was a seacoast town in the Mediterranean, named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. He was a centurion, which meant he was a military commander over a 100. Member group of soldiers for like century is a hundred centurion he led those hundred, and the name of his regiment was called the Italian Regiment. He was a devout man, listen to who this guy was. He was a devout man, he feared God along with his whole household. he did many charitable deeds for the Jewish people, and always prayed. To God. Now, this man was a Gentile. He was not a Jew. He was not a Christian. He wasn't a Christian. He hadn't even heard about Jesus yet. But look at his life. He was devout. He prayed. He did charitable deeds. He was a God seeker. He wanted to know God. And people would look at him, if he lived in our community today and he lived the kind of life that he was living, people would look at him and say, what a great, fine, religious man. In fact, some people might say, what a good Christian man he is. But he wasn't a Christian. He had never heard of Christ and you cannot become a Christian without first accepting Christ as your Savior. He wasn't there yet, but he wanted to know God. God saw his heart. And he knew this man, God sees the future. He knew this is the guy who's going to become the very first Gentile, non-Jew, to come to know Jesus as Savior. Verse 3, about three in the afternoon one day, he distinctly saw in a vision an angel of God who came in and said to him, Cornelius, looking intently at him, he became afraid. I mean, somebody shows up, you know, and your vision calls your name. He said, what is it, Lord? By the way, by him saying Lord, if you notice in, in my Bible, the word Lord is not capitalized, probably not in yours either. The word Lord was a common word in their day and their time that we would, we would translate as sir. So he wasn't saying you're God. He was just saying, yes, sir, what can I do for you? He was a military man. What is it, Lord? The angel told him, You know what? Listen, your prayers and your acts of charity have come up as a memorial offering before God. God has noticed that you're trying to find him. God has noticed that you want to do whatever you can do to reach him and to please him. God's paying attention, Cornelius. Now, verse five, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, who's also named Peter. He's lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had gone, he called two of his household slaves and a devout soldier, another soldier who was like him and seeking God, who was one of these who who attended him. And after explaining everything to them, here's what you need to do. You need to go to Joppa. You need to find the Simon of the the Tanner's house. There's a man named Simon Peter who's living there. Bring him back to me. Cornelius didn't know why. He just knew that's what he was told to do by the angel. For Cornelius Cornelius to believe in Jesus, someone had to tell him the gospel and who Jesus was. See, it wasn't just about his good deeds and his charitable deeds and his prayers. He needed to know Jesus, but he didn't know Jesus because nobody had told him about Jesus. So God said, I'm gonna take care of that right now. And who did God call to tell him about Jesus? He chose this fellow, Peter. We all know Peter, one of Jesus' disciples. And apparently from the story, from things we read about Peter here in this story and, and later on, Peter was a very prejudiced man. Peter was a Jew. Peter did not like Gentiles. He didn't feel like Gentiles belonged in the kingdom of God. He didn't want to have any part with Gentiles. And yet his life was about to be shaken up, if you will, by the Lord. This was a wake-up call for Peter. Verse 9. The next day as they were traveling and nearing the city, Peter went up to pray on the housetop about noon. And then he became hungry. It's lunchtime, and he wanted to eat, but while they were preparing something he went into a visionary state. And in this vision he saw heaven opened and an object that resembled resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners to the earth, and in it were all four footed animals and reptiles of the earth and birds of the sky, just every animal you can imagine is coming down in the sheet. Reptiles, birds, four-footed animals. And the implication is all these animals that are coming down this sheet were animals that the Old Testament law told the Jews, "You may not eat." There were pigs in the sheet. There were reptiles in the sheet. Have you ever eaten an alligator? I hear it's really good. In the sheet, there were birds of the air that they weren't allowed to eat in this sheet. And the sheet comes down, and a voice speaks out to Peter. And look what his voice says Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Peter responded, No, Lord. By the way, the word Lord there is capitalized in your Bible, isn't it? He's talking to Jesus and he knows it. No, Lord. You ever tell God no, by the way, when he tells you to do something? I've done that. You ever argue with God about things? Peter's about to do that. He's doing that right now. By the way, telling God no is not an advisable thing to do. Arguing with God, you always lose. No, Lord, His rationale is this I have never eaten anything common and ritually unclean. No, Lord, I know that the book of Leviticus tells me all the things I may and may not eat, and I've never broken any of those rules. I've never eaten anything unclean. I've never had any shellfish, I've never had any pork. I've never eaten any birds of the air that I'm not allowed to eat. There were very, very few things that they were allowed to eat on this earth. And Peter said, I've never broken any of those rules. I'm a good, kosher, Jewish boy. No, Lord, I can't do that. The Lord responds to him. In fact, this discussion goes on a second time. And the voice said to him, look, here's his answer, the Lord's answer to him. What God has made clean, you must not call common. All these things in the sheet, God has cleaned them. God's de- declared them clean, not unclean. They're not wrong to eat. Kill and eat, Peter. And this happened three times. To- it took Peter three times with this conversation to get it. Are you hard headed like Peter? Three times. And then the object was taken up into heaven. Now, if you read on in chapter 10, and we're not going to take the time to do that, but, but Peter goes on and he shares the gospel with Cornelius. He, he, and he does so reluctantly because he goes into the Gentile's house and he's never been in a Gentile's house before. That was forbidden. He would never come into your house or my house prior to this. He went into the Gentile Cornelius' house and shared the gospel with him. And before he got done explaining it all to him, Cornelius and his household believed and accepted Christ as Savior. Now, the point here is that there are no more dietary restrictions because don't call unclean what God has cleansed because Jesus did everything necessary for salvation on the cross. And don't miss the point and think, oh, here's what this story is about. Jesus died so we can eat barbecue and shrimp. That's not what it's about, but I'm glad that we can. Amen? Amen. One of the one benefit of his death was to move those restrictions out of the way. Remember what Paul said last week that he has erased the certificate of debt that was against us. That means he had the certificate of debt was the law. He erased it and said it's, it no longer applies. But Peter, it took Peter a while. This is the 10th chapter of Acts. This is probably years after Jesus has died. And then Cornelius hears the gospel and he's ready and he accepts Christ. By the way, if you're a Gentile here today, and that's probably most of us in this room, this is a great story of of our heritage because Cornelius, in many regards, is our spiritual father, the first Gentile to receive Christ. Now, Let's go back to Galatians, if you want to turn back there to Colossians, or excuse me, Colossians chapter 2. And listen to Paul explain this principle to this church that's being told by the Jews on one hand and by the cultists on the other that you've got to keep certain rules to know God. The Jewish teachers were coming in and telling the church they had to be circumcised. We looked at that last week. They had to keep the Jewish festivals. They had to keep the Jewish religious observances. They likely also had something to say about what they ate. The Gnostic cult came in, and they were different from the Jews, but they're coming in, and they're saying, hey, our practices about we, we do, we, if you really want to know God, do away with material things. Become a monk in a monastery, essentially. Wear sackcloth and sit in ashes. Don't have anything in life that can be considered a finer thing in life because those will keep you from knowing God. They talked about their superior knowledge and visions. If you really know God, you're going to see visions, and we see these visions, and it gives us the superior knowledge and it gives us our humility as well that we know God better than you do. They worshiped angels. And they said, all these things are necessary if you're going to really know God. And they're getting these Colossians wondering, is this really right? And Paul comes in and says, "Uh uh-uh. So he lays it down for this church so they wouldn't stumble either way. Colossians 2, beginning in verse 16. I'm going to read through verse 23. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food or drink in the manner of a festival or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. Let me stop there. And the word that he uses there, don't let anyone judge you. The word judge here is a Greek word that means to be the umpire. Anybody ever play sports? You ever play baseball, softball, any kind of sport where there's an official who blows a whistle or calls you out or says that's a strike or says you've stepped out of bounds? That's against the rules. You can't do that. That person on the field that makes sure everybody plays within the rules, Don't let anyone be the umpire in your life regarding these things. What things? What you eat, what you drink, and a matter of festivals, new moons, or Sabbath days. Those were all Jewish observations. Festivals, things like what's what's coming up right now, Passover, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Pentecost. Those kind of festivals where they stop everything and they just jumped into it, had a great time, worshiping and sacrificing. Don't let anybody judge you if you don't do that. Don't let anybody judge you about the new moons. The Jewish calendar was built on the new moon, and this was a monthly kind of observance. Or Sabbath days, that's every week, from Friday sunset to Saturday sunset. Don't let anybody tell you that, that, that Sunday, by the way, is the Christian Sabbath. It's not. We don't have a Sabbath. Our Sabbath is Christ. He said, come to me and I will give you Rest. He is our Sabbath. He came to us, we'll see, fulfill the law. We don't have a Sabbath day. If you say, well, I, I, I observe the Sabbath. You mean you're gonna tell me from sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday, you don't leave your house or your yard? That everything that you eat from that period of time, you've, you've cooked in advance? That's what it took to do the Sabbath day. So we don't have a Sabbath. We don't. And he says, look, if these Jews are saying, if you don't observe the Sabbath, you don't know God you're not there yet he said don't let them be your umpire then he goes on verse 7 so what are these things these festivals and these moons and these sabbaths they are a shadow of what is what was to come now, everybody we all understand shadow don't we Like I'm looking right now, I see a shadow, my shadow on the floor in front of me. And it's in front of me because the light is behind me. So that shadow, if I walk, it moves and it keeps going in front of me. He said, these things are a shadow of what is to come. Behind the shadow is something that is more important that's coming. What's really me? Is that shadow me or is this me? This is me, not that. But if you see that shadow approaching, you know somebody's coming behind it. The festivals, the new moons, the Sabbaths, he said, were all a shadow of what? The substance is the Messiah. What they foreshadowed was the coming of Christ, was that Jesus was coming. All those sacrifices, all those festivals, all the tabernacle and the temple and everything inside them, all were telling the Jewish people one day, God is sending the Lamb of God who will die for the sins of the world. They were a shadow. Don't worship the shadow because Messiah has already come, Paul's saying to them. Let no one disqualify you. Again, the umpire idea. You're out. You don't do these things. You're out. Let no one disqualify you. Don't let anybody be the whistleblower because you don't do these things. Insisting on ascetic practices, giving up material things. I'm just going to go live in a cave in the forest somewhere and eat water and bread, and pray, and assume some position, and meditate, and God's going to, I'm going to meet with God. He said, that's not what it's about. Don't let anybody disqualify you assisting on that, on the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. Don't let anybody say, but you really don't know God until you've had this vision, you've had this experience. And inflated without cause by his unspiritual mind. People that tell you that, he said, they don't even know the real deal. He doesn't, speaking of that teacher, verse 19, he doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons develops with with growth from God. He's separated from the head and he's gonna explain to us, I'm gonna talk about that in a moment, that the head is Christ. He's not even connected to Jesus if he tells you those things. Verse 20, if you died with the Messiah, and we talked about this last week, he spoke about dying with Christ, and we'll speak about that again. If you died with the Messiah to the elements, elemental forces of this world, why do you still why do you, why do you live if you, as if you still belong to the world? How come? If you're dead to all that, why do you still practice those things? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destroyed by being used up. Jesus said it this way. Don't think that because you eat certain things that makes you holy or you drink certain things that makes you holy because here's the facts, Jesus said. You eat something, it goes into your body, you digest it, and then it passes out of your body. Meaning it's what? It's temporary at best. It's not lifelong lasting. It's not eternal. Don't think that these things are eternal because they're not. Don't be destroyed by their commands and doctrines of men, he said. Although these, and here's the kicker, although these have the reputation of wisdom by promoting ascetic practices and humility and severe treatment of, of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. What does he say? These people that bring these kind of things along and we're teaching, he said, they sound real smart, don't they? They make you think that they know a whole lot more about God than you do and somehow you've missed out on something that God wants you to have and you haven't even heard about. He said, don't be suckered by it. He said, because it's not true. He said, and the fact of the matter is, They don't curb any kind of self-indulgence. What is Paul saying to them? Let me give you some principles here this morning and move through this passage and just pull out some things. Number one, it's important that every believer be anchored in grace and scripture. That means not anchored in works and ritual. Your conversion, if you know Jesus, your conversion was complete when you put your total trust in him as your savior. And that's all about grace. And grace is what? God giving me what I don't deserve. It's free. It's a gift. And it's the opposite of legalistic regulations. You and I have to get a grasp of grace, Christians, because here's why. Many of us in our church, and I'm pointing at myself right now, many of us, I know some of you because I've had these conversations with you, I witness it, many of us have legalistic tendencies, Either it comes from our personalities, where our personality is such that everything in life is either black or white. There's no middle ground. There's no compromise. There's no gray. It's either right or wrong. Everything, and we won't budge on that. We also we have legalistic tendencies that comes from our old nature and our pridefulness. And we like, any, I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand, but any of you like to be the Umpire? Jesus talked to the umpires in his day. They were Pharisees. And he said, look, here's the deal. You guys want to point out the speck in somebody's eye and you don't see that there's a you know, a two by 12 coming out of your own. But you want to be the umpires. Point out others' flaws based on the rules that we keep for ourselves. Grace is a tough lesson for some of us to learn. But here's the deal. Here's why we have to learn it. Grace is the heart of the gospel. It's what the gospel is is just covered in, immersed in grace. And how can I say enough, you know, if I'm to be anchored in grace, how can I say enough also about the responsibility of every one of us to have a firm grasp on the scriptures? This is not just the pastor's responsibility. You need to be a student of the word of God. That takes discipline. It takes hard work. It means sitting under some solid Bible teaching. It means seeing your Bible as the tool that God uses in my life to keep me out of error and keep me out of trouble. You ought to be in the habit. I've said this. Let me just say this again. You ought to be in the habit of bringing your Bible with you every Sunday when you come to church. So you can open it up, because I'm not going to put everything up on that screen. I'm going to say, turn in your Bible. You need to have your Bible. Listen, if you don't have a Bible, tell me so, and I'll get you one. But you need to have a Bible so that you can sit down, and you can write notes in it. You can mark things, and you can say, I need to check this out a little bit further. I need to find out if what Rick said today was true or not. Am I supposed to do that? You can't do that unless you're a student of the word of God. And that may mean there's some things in my life I may have to give up that are taking my time so I can spend time in the word. This is life-changing stuff found in these pages that we teach here. There there was a there was and there is a danger for Christians who are saved by faith through faith uh, through grace to become enamored with a teacher or a blogger these days who teaches like these Judaizers and these Gnostics. Uh, I've been shocked. Our, our pastors, we've just kind of been blown away by... And at, it, it's happened here in our church, at men and women who were in this church, and at one time they lived in grace, but because they went to a seminar, because they found some blog on the internet by some stranger they don't even know, but it came out with something that really is out in left field, but they swallowed it hook, line, and sinker, and it turned them away from grace into regulations. You need to be very careful. And that's what Paul was telling these Colossians. Jesus said about these laws... We need to be anchored in the scriptures and anchored in grace. Jesus said these things were given, that he came to fulfill them. They were given, Jesus said in Matthew 5 17, don't assume that I came to destroy the law or prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Christ came to fulfill the law, which means the law was completed in him. That's why we're not bound as Christians to observe the 613 ceremonial laws of the Jews. It's Just like today, the temptation was to look at someone who didn't observe the same rules as you and to judge them for it. The Romans struggled with this. So did the Colossians and so do we. Number two, if Christ is not all to us, we'll turn to false religion. Listen, think about this with me. You guys are smart people here. If God the Father was satisfied with what Jesus did on the cross in dying to pay for our sins. He was satisfied. For you theologians, that's the word propitiation. He was satisfied with that. That did the trick. That was all it took. If God the Father was satisfied with what Jesus did on the cross, and he proved that satisfaction by three days later, raising him from the dead... Shouldn't we also be satisfied with what Jesus did on the cross? But why do we have to say, as these Judaizers were saying, but there's more that I have to do? Not true. It's when we begin to think that it's about what we wear or what we eat that we're saying, Jesus, you know, on the cross, I really appreciate it. You did so much to help me, but... I'm going to finish the job. That's what we say by doing that. If Christ is not all to us, we'll turn to false religion. Number three, God uses the church to grow and strengthen me in the faith. He says about these Gnostics and these Judaizers that they have been, they're not connected to the head. They don't hold on to the head, he said. He wrote to the Corinthian church that Christ is the head of the church and the church is his body. Now, what is, I'm no doctor. But, but I understand if there's no connection between the head and the rest of the body, what do you have? You got a dead body, don't you? I mean, we're smart enough to know that, that our, you know, you know the phrase, um, I got my head screwed on wrong, got my head screwed on backwards. What does that mean? I just did something, you know, how dumb was that? Where did that come from? Because we understand that our directions in life, my body does what my head tells it to do. That's how it works. Our brain is up here, most of us. And it tells us, here's you know, what we do. We, and that's the, the illustration that Paul gives. When someone is brain dead, they may have life, but they're comatose, which means they're not really alive fully they're in a suspended life but you know they're they're there but they're not there and it's Christ who gives us who belong to him and belong to one another in the church he's the one who gives us our life our spiritual nourishment our strength and our growth but if because we choose something different than Christ or something in addition to Christ what we've done is we've essentially severed ourselves from our head and A church that has separated itself from Christ, and it's happened with churches, it's happened with entire denominations. A church that separates itself from Christ and from grace has lost its purpose and its source of real spiritual power to reach this world's lostest direction. But, Rick, the church doesn't save us. No, it doesn't. But a church that is attached to Christ is God's design and plan for you and me to grow and mature. There is no other alternative. God's got no plan B. Number four, religion that is rule-driven is powerless to stop sin. When you and I sin, and by the way, I sin, all right? Ask people who know me well, I sin. I'm not proud of it, not happy about it, but I still live in this body of flesh, When we sin, it's because we allow our fallen nature to control us. Let me give an illustration. How many of you have sometime in your life decided, I'm going to lose weight, I'm going to go on a diet? You ever done that? Four of us are honest people here. Okay. Yes, many of us have I'm going to go on a diet. And here's what you discovered. You go on that diet and you say, I'm not eating those and I'm not eating that and I'm not, I'm not going to do it. And you walk through the grocery store and you go by the bakery and you look at all that stuff. And I'm on a diet, I'm not going to eat you. And then you go by all the, all the stuff where all the stuff is that you're not supposed to eat and you tell it, I'm not going to eat you, I'm not going to have you. And you find out pretty quick because you've decided I'm not going to do this. And all you think about is eating the stuff you said I'm not going to have. And it drives you crazy, and three days later, you're sitting there eating the cookies and the ice cream and everything else that you swore you weren't going to eat. You just Because it, when you say, I won't, you parents, here's how, here's how it works. You say to your child, don't go in that room. Don't do it. What do they do? As soon as you say, don't, they say, I'm going to find a way to make it happen if it kills me. That's our human nature. And when we have these lists and say, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, no. It consumes us and we end up stumbling and falling right back into it. We do it. That's what Paul's saying here. The things that we try to avoid, we end up doing. And why is that? The only way for you and me in our lives to conquer sin is through the one who died to free us from it. It's not, I'm going to be self-determined. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to make these New Year's resolutions. I am bound and determined. If that's all about you, it's not going to happen. You can't stop from sinning. Romans chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, Paul said, For we know that our old self was crucified with him. Christian, Crucified with him in order that sin's dominion, sin's control, sin's rule over the body may be abolished so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Since a person who has died is free from sin's claims, now if we died with Christ, and he's already told us that we did, if we die with Christ or since we died with Christ, we believe that we will also die live with him. We died with Christ. Wait a second, Rick. I'm smart enough to know that Jesus died on the cross when? 2,000 years ago. <laughs> Jesus, you're in me and you're not going to let me sin right now. All right, now. <laughs> you see how it works? I was real tempted to take a stroll down this aisle. <laughs> Listen, when did I die with Christ? Because I know Jesus died on a cross 2,000 years ago. When you or I who receive him, who, uh, when you and I who have received him as Savior, when we do that, when that happens in our lives, for me it was as a 10-year-old boy, at that moment we are uniting with Jesus in his death. And so Paul says we died spiritually with him and were made free from sin's power and sin's sin's claim on us. We're the only people in the universe who can say no to sin. But not because we're strong, it's because we're weak, but because the strong one lives within us. Rules religion, Paul says, the doctrines of men. It's not about Christ. And although they may sound holy and they may sound righteous, They have no ability to make us holy or righteous, but yet you and I who know Christ are righteous in him. We're made holy by the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who works in us from the inside out to renew and restore us. So what's Paul saying here to this church, and I think to Nags Church? Don't be deceived by false teachers. They come and knock on your door and they want to sell you a magazine or they want to tell you about a book that you don't have that reveals all the true things about God. Don't fall prey to that. Discover grace. Commit to being part of belonging to a church family where you'll develop friendships and be shepherded, where you'll be taught the truth of God's word. And and that's why we're here at Nexon Church. That's why we have this place so that people can come together and belong to one another and discover Christ together. Every believer needs to belong to a church family where we can find security in the fold. And if that's the next level of growth for you, I hope you'll let us know. We'll show you how that can happen. Would you bow with me for prayer? Lord, I'm not Jewish, and I've never met a Gnostic. But I certainly in my life, I'll just say it in Baptist churches that I belong to, I've been told either by by implication or by direct teaching, I've been told that I had to keep certain rules in order to please you that I was not really a committed Christian unless I didn't do that or I did that, unless I wore my hair, cut my hair, wore certain clothes all the time. Thank you, Lord, that sometime later in my life, primarily because I read your word and studied your word, I came to the realization that that's just not the case, that I'm complete in Christ, in me. And that it's not about keeping rules. It's just simply about growing in grace. And I know, God, there are things you don't want me to do. I'm not that dumb to think, well, now I can do anything. I know there's some things you want me to stay away from that are not good, they are not healthy, that are not holy. But thank you, Father, that you've given me your word and you've given me The truth of it. Your your spirit indwells me. Thank you that you've placed me in a church where where I have pastors who who hold me accountable, who believe this word too, and and love me enough that if I steer the wrong way, they're going to turn me around. They're going to do everything they can to restore me in grace, in love. And I bless your name for that today and praise you for that. May we all, Father, no matter who we are, may we discover this freedom. May we be careful not to fall prey to religion by ritual. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org.